Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books and Math, a channel of the New Books Network. Our guest today is Al Pazamentier, author of Mathematics Entertainment for the Millions. In reading this book, it occurred to me that it might equally well have been entitled Millions of Mathematical Entertainments. There may not be millions of entertainments, but there's an incredible amount. Most of it easily accessible to a middle school or high school student, and that's exactly the audience that we want to show how enticing mathematics can be. Anyone who loves mathematics will find a number of old favorites in this book, but almost certainly there's a lot of cool stuff you've never seen before. I've been looking at math for more than seven decades, and there's a lot of cool stuff I've never seen. Al, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. You know, one of the things that occurred to me in preparing for this podcast is that the listeners might want to have a pencil and paper ready is that way they can follow a few of the number tricks. Al, I know if you gave a talk on this, you'd have a whiteboard on which to write and demonstrate some of these things. So some of the listeners may want to pause the podcast here and get pencil and paper. Well, sounds like a good idea. Uh, okay. Al, what motivated you to write this book? Although I think it's pretty easy to infer from the title. Well, actually, whenever I'm in social circles and I tell people what my uh, field of interest is, mathematics, uh, for, as you said, many, many decades, over five decades, and uh, the first response I get from 90% of people, oh my God, I was always terrible in mathematics. It's like a a badge of honor to say I was terrible in mathematics and look at me, I'm a successful physician, lawyer, businessman, whatever. And uh, I like to change that a little bit. And over the past, oh, maybe 15 to 20 years, I've been working on a number of books intended to show the general public that mathematics can be fun and interesting, exciting. And I find that probably the primary reason that people have such a negative feeling about mathematics is that they probably didn't have a very good math teacher in high school. Because if you have a good math teacher in high school and he spends the time or she spends the time to motivate students, showing them that there is some mathematics beyond the curriculum that's fun and interesting, it tends to have a very positive spinoff on how they react to the subject matter that's part of the curriculum. So this book is intended to show the beauty of mathematics and the fun you can have with it. Yeah, and I think that the uh, experience that you have is common to a lot of people who are mathematicians. So it's good for them to have a book like this handy so that uh, they can deal with the situation the same way you do. Um, Anyway, the book starts with an extremely tantalizing mathematical amusement. Uh, And the book has a lot of them, by the way. The Five Heads, Seven Tails Puzzle. And maybe you'd like to talk about that to start off. Well, 
I'll tell you, it's a, this is a, a very, um, uh, very strange kind of problem because it's so simple. And what it is, is something that you find really can't be possible. And yet with very, very simple algebra, you can show why it works. Suppose your friend is seated at a table in a dark room. And on the table, there are 12 pennies, five of which are heads up and seven are tails up. She knows where the coins are, so she can mix them by sliding them around. But because the room is dark, she will not know which if, if the coins that she is touching were originally heads up or tails up. You now ask her to separate the coins into two piles, one of five and one of seven coins, and then flip the coins in the five group, a uh, five coin group. And then to everyone's amazement, when the lights are turned on, there will be an equal number of heads in the two piles. And the reaction is, you must be kidding. How could that happen? You did some magic. No, it's very simply explained with algebra. And as I say in the introduction to the book, it I give the, uh, the algebraic, uh, I mean, I'm talking the first month of elementary algebra. That's how elementary it is. So I, I leave that open as a uh, little puzzle if anybody wants to try it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. You know, the book starts out with a lengthy chapter called Arithmetical Entertainments. And if you love numbers, you'll love this chapter. And if you don't think you love numbers, you might think otherwise after seeing some of the delightful examples in this chapter. One of the things I liked about this chapter was that it encourages number feel, which calculators tend to extinguish. Too many students grow up today thinking of numbers as identifiers like zip codes and phone numbers, rather than paying attention to their arithmetic properties. Yeah, that's true. Um, there are a lot of, there are so many amazing relationships among numbers, and I think uh, we're probably going to discuss some of them here. I mean, talk oh, you about, bet. I mean, first of all, probably the most famous numbers of all are the Fibonacci numbers. And uh, it's named after Leonardo of Pisa, who uh, survived the uh, Italian and the North African populations in the years roughly 1170 to 1230 and thereabouts. And uh, he is actually the gentleman who is responsible for us using what we call the Hindu Arabic numerals. Because in 1202, he wrote a book called Liber Abaci which was a, a book on problems in mathematics. And the first sentence, the absolute first sentence in the book is, I came across these numerals in the Arabic world where he worked with his father, who was a, uh, um, a kind of a businessman in the uh, Arabian uh, uh, part of uh, Africa. And, uh, he, and he lists the numbers 987654321, the numerals that we have. And that's the first time that in the European world, these numbers, these numerals appeared. He also mentions that they had a thing called a zephyr, which we call zero today. And uh, the rest of the book, he uses these numerals. And it's the first time those were used. It took about 50 years before it caught on throughout some parts of Italy and then spread out through Europe, because it was just, as you can tell, much easier to work with those numbers than with the uh, Roman numerals. In any case, what makes that famous is not necessarily that it was 
the first book with the numerals because we've long forgotten that. But what makes this famous is that in the cha- in chapter 12 of that book, there's a problem that he ha- he poses about the regeneration of rabbits. And I won't go into the problem now because it may take a bit of time, but <clears throat> it's a problem where you have to count the number of rabbits that get generated in the course of a year. And if you look at them month by month, the number is 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, and so on. Each succeeding number turns out to be the sum of the two preceding ones. 1 plus 1 is 2. 1 plus 2 is 3. 2 plus 3 is 5. 3 plus 5 is 8. And so it goes. And those are known as the Fibonacci numbers, and they are everywhere that you look. If you look at the spirals on a pineapple, there are three spirals, two in one direction, one in the third direction, uh, in another direction. These are uh, spirals, are, the number of spirals are Fibonacci numbers. There are, <coughs> um, if you look at a pine cone, if you look at any spiral of, of, of flower, if you look at, for example, uh, let's say a, um, a pear tree, if, and a, pear, a pear tree where none of the branches were uh, trimmed, and you take the first branch and you count the number of branches that you have to get to, to get to a branch in the same direction as that first one, the number of branches that you pass will be a Fibonacci number. You know, isn't there a Fibonacci society or something like that? In 1963, in California, a group of mathematicians formed the Fibonacci Association. And since then, every year, (coughs) they produce a Fibonacci quarterly. And these are journals by mathematicians with articles relating to the Fibonacci numbers. They are everywhere. And so it's it's just a lot of fun and things you can do with them, amazing stuff you can do with them. Uh, for example, that I use them regularly, if I'm driving in a country where they use kilometers instead of miles and my head is still mile-oriented, I can change from miles to kilometers by using the Fibonacci numbers mentally. Because if you go up one number, you go from miles to kilometers. If you go down one number, you go from kilometers to miles. And it just works because the ratio of the consecutive Fibonacci numbers is about 1.6, which is also unusual because as you get to the larger Fibonacci numbers and take the ratio of consecutive ones, you create the golden ratio. And that's a whole other discussion for later on perhaps i'm sorry it took so much time to explain. oh no oh no um uh, i thought uh i thought and i hope people you know realize how fascinating that is that this sequence of numbers shows up in geometry and the golden ratio the one thing i know about the golden ratio is that the greeks loved it and it was the ratio that they used in constructing the parthenon i think the, yeah that's correct but uh it's so primitive uh, for example, Leonardo da Vinci was aware of the par- of the golden uh, ratio because if you know that Vitruvian man that stands in a circle in a square with his hands out, uh, that has the golden ratio in it because he wrote he drew that for a book on the golden ratio uh, as a frontispiece for the book. Also, um, Leonardo's uh, um, uh, the Mona Lisa 
if you put her head in a box, a rectangular box, that rectangular box is a golden rectangle. It's a the length to width has a golden ratio. So he was well aware of it, as were many other artists. So it comes up in art, it comes up in architecture. The UN building is probably a golden rectangle as well. So there, it just, it there's no end to it. As a matter of fact, as you probably know, I've written a book about the Fibonacci numbers, and I've written a book about the golden rectangle, and uh, you can Google it and find it easily. But it's it's fascinating stuff. You know, there are some numbers that are also that aren't named after people, but have intriguing properties. I think you can guess what a palindromic number is. It's going to be the same backwards and forwards. But do they have any interesting properties? Yeah, well, that, that's an interesting thing because in the year 1202, uh, I'm sorry, 2002, um, I did an op-ed in the New York Times on January 2nd where I mentioned that the year 2002 was a palindromic number. Read the same in both directions. And then I kind of discussed all the fun things you can do. But one of them is that if you take any two-digit number and you reverse it and add the two numbers and then keep adding every time you get a result, flip them around, add, flip, add, flip, add, flip, add, eventually you will get a palindromic number. Naturally, there are some exceptions like the number, I think, uh, 196 doesn't work. So it uh, it's a uh, uh, an interesting thing where you can generate Fibonacci, uh, uh, palindromic numbers by flipping any number around constantly. So, I mean, there are other cute things with numbers. I mean, uh, you mentioned numbers that are, um, I mean, there are funny, uh, <clears throat> the word ra uh, radar, radar is a palindromic word. It reads the same in both directions. Or... Uh, um, Abel was I air I saw Elba, which is a statement that we obviously would attribute to Napoleon. And uh, yet, if you read that in both directions, it's the same. Or uh, um, there's some lots of those, uh, and and they can be fun as well. But uh, we have number relationships like the Capricorn numbers, which are absolutely fascinating, named after a gentleman by the name of Capricorn. Uh, for example, if you have a pencil and paper there, take the number 9. If you square 9, you get 81. Then you take the two digits, 8 and 1, and add them together, you get back to 9. Take the number 45. You square the number 45, <coughs> the result is 2025, or 2025. And if you split that in half and add them together, you get back to 45. And so there are quite a few numbers that hold that property. And again, that's what's called Capricorn numbers. So they have a, 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 a specific name to that. And they're fun to do, just fun. So, you know, we can go through more of those if you'd like. I can mention just a couple more quickly. Um, if you'd like to play around, say, at, at, at a lunch table with somebody and have a napkin in which you can write, and you tell anybody at the tell everybody at the table, uh, take any three-digit number you want, any three-digit number, as long as the digits aren't the same. Okay, then take that number and flip it around, reverse the digits, then subtract it. Okay, now take that difference that you just got, 
reverse the digits again and add it. Now, everybody on the on the table took a different number, right? Right. Okay. Everybody will have gotten the same answer, 1,089. How does that happen? Oh, my gosh, that's crazy. How can that happen? Well, again, simple algebra will show why that works. Again, I'll repeat. You take a three-digit number, any three-digit number where the digits are not the same, reverse the order of the digits, subtract. Take that answer, reverse the order of digits, and add, and you'll get 1089. Now, that one can be explained with algebra, but there are some that can't be explained with algebra. For example, take a four-digit number, any four-digit number, again, with the different digits, and take a rearrange the digits now to make the number, the largest number you can and the smallest number you can make. Okay, you've got that. Subtract the two. You get an answer. Take that number that you got as an answer, or rearrange the digits, make the largest number out of it, and the smallest number. Subtract. And keep doing that, and you will eventually get to 6174, 6174. At that point in time, when you do that same process with 6174, and everybody will eventually get that number, you will find that you get back to 6174. In other words, if you take the digit 6174 and make the largest number, which would be 7641, and then subtract from that the smallest number you can make, which would be 1467, you'll get back to 6174. Again, it's an amazing relationship. That one is not so easily explained with algebra, but it's fun to do because you can do it at a, a dinner table, lunch table, and everybody will be amazed because it's so simple, using nothing more than a little bit of arithmetic. You know, one of the examples you have in the book is the number 153, and I was introduced to this number by Art Porges. I don't know whether or not you've ever read the short story, The Devil and Simon Flagg. You probably have. Yeah. Okay. Art Porges was the author of that. And I got to know him and gotten conversations with him. And he used to be, uh, before he became an author, and he wrote a lot of science fiction and mystery stories. And a lot of them are, you know, they're all sort of on the O. Henry-esque type. He was a wonderful writer and a wonderful correspondent. But he used to teach uh, mathematics at Occidental and Los Angeles City College back in the 50s before he became a writer. And he told me about the number 153. If you take the digits 1, 5, and 3 and cube them, 1 cubed is 1, 5 cubed is 125, 3 cubed is 27. And if you add up 1 plus 125 plus 27, you get 153, which was the number you started with. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, there are lots like that, and they are fun. As I say, the book is loaded with things like that. Um, but um, there are also some uh, unusual problems that will be a little bit difficult to understand or to accept. Let's put it that way. Um, there's one that I, a problem that I came across in a conversation with a good friend of mine, Dr. Herbert Hauptman, who actually was the first mathematician to, w to win the Nobel Prize. Of course, we know there's no Nobel Prize in mathematics, but he won it for chemistry. Uh, he used mathematics to solve a chemical problem. Uh, he's long past, but go very good friend. We've co-authored some books. 
But one time at, at lunch, he was telling me about a problem that he gave to his staff about two bottles of wine, a red wine, and a white wine. And uh, it was a delightful problem and seemed very simple. He said, supposing you have a bottle of red wine and a bottle of white wine, and you take a spoon, say a tablespoonful of the red wine and pour it into the white wine, then you mix it up. And then you take a spoon of that now mixed wine, the same size spoon, and you pour it back into the red wine. The question is, is there more red wine in the white wine or white wine in the red wine? And he gave this to his staff of scientists, and they fooled around with it. And then finally one came, said, I've got a computer program that solved the problem. And uh, it the problem was solved, as it were, correct maybe five digits out. He said, no, you didn't do it right. You weren't thinking. I don't want the computer to do this. I want you to think. And then we discussed that solution, and it, it lends itself to some very interesting uh, uh, problem-solving methods. I'll, I'll, if Do you want me to mention this to the audience now? or Sure, why not? Okay. Yeah. Um, the way One way to do that, and I think it's the easiest way to understand it, is supposing you have two bottles of wine, let's say two uh, gallons of wine, and uh, two bottles of ga- gallon sized bottles of wine, each of which is half full. One has red wine and one has white wine. And instead of taking a spoonful of one and dumping it into the other, let's take the whole quantity of one, because it didn't matter if we use a tablespoon, a teaspoon, a, uh, a gigantic spoon. It wouldn't make, as long as we did the same one back and forth, we're going to take a spoon that's as, as big as a quart of wine. So we're going to dump the quart of wine from one bottle, the red wine, into the white wine. So now we have a mixture of 50-50 in the white wine bottle. Then we take that mixture, a quart of it, and dump it back into the empty red wine bottle. And we ask ourselves, is there more red wine or white wine or white wine or red wine? And the answer is obvious. It's equal. So here's a situation where using the maximum amount of... uh, uh, or using a maximum situation helps solve a problem, which, by the way, in in everyday life is a very useful technique, and we use it oftentimes not even aware that we're using it, namely when we say, well, in the worst-case scenario, this can happen or that can happen, and we base our decision on that, and that's very analogous to that. Yeah, uh, yeah and you know, um, one of the things that your book features is it features a number of problems involving logical reasoning. And some of these problems, I think, can be solved by logical reasoning, but some of them are sort of trial and error. And um, I, I don't know how you feel about where trial and error fits into the structure of mathematics. And that's worth a little discussion, too, because one of the one, you know, one of the uh, uh, one of the standard things that they teach early on is something called guess and check. And uh, that's a valid technique in some senses, but it's not, I'm, I'm curious about what you think of it as far as learning mathematics is concerned. I realize this is a bit uh, off the track, but it's, it's something that uh, was prompted by your discussion of the red wine, white wine problem. Well, I think whatever procedure you use, that 
makes you feel comfortable to get to a solution is not a bad idea. Some people are prone to think in terms of trying one thing and see how that works. And then, <clears throat> But the trouble is when some people try something that doesn't work, they oftentimes do the same thing again and again and again, like running to the wall, running to the wall, instead of saying, well, I, I ran this way and I hit the wall. Maybe I ought to try a different path. If you can do that, then it's okay. Yeah, I think that one of the things that uh, mathematics does is it gives you different approaches to solving problems. And I think that even though not all the problems we encounter in life are mathematical in nature, just knowing that there are different ways to look at and solve problems is important because, as you point out, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people, one of the things that they do is their problem solving technique consists of use the first thing that comes into their head. Yeah, that's true. And it's also, unfortunately, and this is really unfortunately, our society is built on testing. We have SAT tests, we have LSAT, we have all kinds of tests. We have tests to get into special schools. And so there is a great deal of emphasis in many states where there are state exams, like New York State, for example, at the Regents exams, where teachers teach to the test. And that is really, really bad. And uh, unfortunately, it's a reality we just have to deal with. But uh, yes, you're right. We you need to. Th you know, I'd like to get back to some of the problems involving numbers, because I think there are some interesting ones that I think the audience would find interesting. One of the ones that I always liked was the Goldbach conjecture, because it is so easy to state, so easy to understand. And it's it's fascinating that nobody is in. In fact, the Goldbach conjecture is simpler than Fermat's last theorem. Oh, sure. Uh, well, the only difference is that uh, Fermat's last theorem has been, so to speak, proved uh, by uh, Andrew Wiles, but the Goldbach conjecture has not. Uh, Goldbach conjecture was uh, came through correspondences with uh, Newton and others, uh, where he said that any even number greater than two can be expressed as a sum of two prime numbers. And it's very simple because if you take uh, three is one plus, uh, or, you know, and any, take five, uh, two plus three is five, take seven, and, you know, two plus... Well, any even number is the sum of two primes. Yeah, is that what I said? I thought yeah, I said. Um, and That's yes, right. but the examples yeah. you chose were odd. My error. That's okay. um, so it's something that's so simple, and it has been shown to be true for millions and millions of places using computers, but no one has ever been able to show that it can be done, that it can be pro proved to be true for all cases. And people say, well, if you did it for millions and millions and trillions of places on a, on a computer, that should pretty much cover it. There's a difference between that and all. All goes to infinity. And uh, that's a different concept. So it's it's an open problem. We don't spend much time worrying about it, but there are still mathematicians who feel that they would like to be able to prove that conjecture because if they do, my goodness, they will be world famous, just as Andrew Wiles became famous when he proved uh, the... Uh, um, the uh, uh, Fermat's Last Theorem. Fermat's Last Theorem. Yep. You know, one of the things about the Goldbach conjecture 
is that people often ask what mathematicians do. I mean, I'm sure you've gotten, I'm sure you've gotten this. And um, when they look at, you know, when they, uh, it's sort of easy to explain in terms of the Goldbach conjecture, because you could tell them that in about the late 1930s, there was a Russian mathematician who proved that every even number was the sum of not more than 300,000 primes. I mean, that's a, you know, you wonder where you get something like that, but you can see that what people are trying to do, people are trying to improve things like that. And uh, they do make progress on, uh, they do make progress on this front, but the progress isn't improving the millions and trillions of numbers that uh, are the, uh, the millions and trillions of even numbers that are the sum of two primes. The progress is showing that every even number can be represented of the sum of not more than 300,000 primes. That's a major step, even though it, it and even though uh, it's much more of a major step and shows you much more of what mathematics is than being able to take a computer and running off millions or trillions of even numbers and showing that they're the sum of two primes. Because yeah. you've got a theorem there. Yeah, you know, when you talk about infinity, uh, one example, I mean, there are a number of things that you can um, demonstrate to people that are not easily understood. Like, for example, when you say that the number of natural numbers, one, two, three, four, five, and so on, which is an infinite set of numbers, is this, has the same number of elements as the number of even numbers. And you say, well, how can it be the same when you're missing all the odd numbers? Well, that's a diff- if you're dealing with infinity, and that's where infinity becomes a very tricky situation. Um, because for every number, I can always match up an even number. So you can't tell me a number in, the, in one set that doesn't have a partner in the other set. So if they all have partners, they must be the same size. But that's not easily understood because you say, hey, you left out all the odd numbers. That's not right. Or another example is a staircase. Now, if you can try to picture this, you're looking at a staircase from the side angle, and uh, you know that there are a certain number of steps, and uh, let's say, just for the sake of argument, there are 10 steps, and uh, you have the the height and the length going out from the wall, and you know that by the Pythagorean theorem, the distance of a straight line that joins the bottom of the first step to the last step would be a squared plus b squared plus c squared, the hypotenuse, and be easily found. But yet you can show, using this notion of this unfortunate concept of infinity, that that's not true. That it's really the length plus the width, not length squared plus uh, uh, width squared. So, uh, in other words, if you take that staircase and you make the stairs smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, the sum of the uh, uh, vertical and horizontal pieces of the staircase will always be the same. And if you make them so, so small, they'll always be the same as the height and the length going from the wall out. And so you say, well, the sum of those stairs, the, the uh, vertical plus the horizontal, is always going to be the same as the big vertical and the big horizontal distance of the entire staircase. But as it gets so, so tiny that you can't even see the stairs anymore, it looks like it's a line. So now you're going to tell me that the height plus the, the length is 
the hypotenuse. No, it's the then you somehow bespeak the Pythagorean theorem. So this is a very tricky situation where once again infinity causes a problem. And so I say, you know, we got to be very careful with that concept of infinity. Al, one of the things that you talk about in the book is the Kal- the Kalatz-Ulam conjecture. It's easy to state. It's fascinating. People who are listening can play around with it. And maybe you could talk a little about it. Yeah, it's a very simple thing. It's, uh, again, one of those things you might want to do at a, uh, a lunch table or a uh, social gathering where people have um, a pencil and paper or maybe you want to do it in the head. Very simple. Choose any number, and uh, you do the following. If it's an odd number, you multiply it by 3 and add 1. If your result is an even number, you divide by 2. And you keep this process going. In other words, anytime you have an odd, you end up with an odd number, you multiply by 3, add 1. And then if it's an, odd, if it's an even number, you divide by 2. And you keep on going on and on and on, and eventually you're going to get to the number one. Some people get it in a few steps. Others may take 10 or 15 steps to get it, but you'll always end up with one. And that is something that, again, hasn't necessarily been proved. It's just a conjecture, but it always works. And it's a lot of fun because, you know, again, it's something that, wow, how did that happen? Well, again, I I didn't get one yet. Do it a little longer. You'll get one. Um, here's a thought. Why not? I was just thinking um, you can just uh, we can just actually talk this one out for a fairly simple number. Why don't we start with seven? Um, seven is an odd number, so we multiply by three, add one. That's twenty-two. Twenty-two right. is an even number, so we divide by two, get eleven. That's odd. Multiply by three, add one. So let's see now: eleven, thirty-three, thirty-four, then right. seventeen, then right. fifty-two then 26, then 13, then 39, um, uh, oh, 13, then 40, 39 and plus 1 is 40, 40 divided by 2 is 20, then 10, then 5, triple it is 15, 1 is 16, 8, 4, 2, 1, yeah, we got back down to 1, so, and that always happens, so it, to me, to me, it's fascinating, and I think so. I think they've worked on computers, and they've shown up to again some incredible number of things. Always get to one, and I remember there was a great mathematician who died sometime in the last century, Paul Erdős, and he said mathematics isn't ready for problems like this. <laughs> I always yeah, he, enjoyed that. He's quite an eccentric. He yeah. was quite eccentric. Al, there was an uh, uh, a, a significant portion of your book is devoted to magic squares. What is a magic square? What is their history? And what are some of the problems they evoke? Well, a magic square is a square arrangement of numbers where the number of rows and columns are the same and the numbers in there uh, in every row will have the same sum as every column and the diagonals as well. And uh, that is simply a magic could be a three by three, it could be a four by four, a five by five, and so on. However, perhaps the most famous of all is one that appeared, curiously enough, in a an etching in uh, 
an etching by the famous, probably the most famous um, uh, mathematician, uh, uh, artist, German artist, Albrecht Dürer, who in the year 1514 drew a picture called Melancholia One, where he has a picture of an angel uh, sitting amongst a bunch of tools, mathematical tools, on, uh, strewn on the on the ground, and then the background on the wall is a square arrangement of numbers, a magic square, where all the numbers in each row and column add up to 34, as well as the diagonals. And I say, that's fine, and where, where did he get it? Well, we don't know where he got it. It's assumed um, there, there, is a, there are a number of very detailed biographies um, on Albrecht Dürer because he was probably the most famous uh, artist of the, uh, in, the, in the German history. Uh, he also did consult with the Italians like da Vinci and so on and went to Italy and, and uh, met with them and so on. But uh, he did have in that piece that magic square. I say, well, what's so unusual about that magic square? Well, if you do a magic square, and in the book we discuss how you can construct a magic square, and it's very simple. Obviously, a three-by-three three magic square is constructed differently than a four-by-four. Four. In other words, we have three kinds of magic squares. Odd, odd order magic square, where the number of rows or columns is an odd number. And then there are two kinds of even uh, ordered magic square, those that are divisible by four and those that are not like the number a six by six versus an eight by eight. In any case, his is a four by four. And if you construct it, you get a magic, if you use the proceed, the correct procedure, you get a magic square. Well, what Dira did was he interchanged the two middle columns. He flipped them around so that the two numbers in the middle of the bottom row would be 15 and 14. And why 15, 14? Well, in most of his etchings, he put the year that he did it with his initials in the lower right-hand corner, and it happened to be 1514 that he did the picture. So then you say, well, okay, that's great. And he maintained, not only did he maintain a magic square by making a shift of those two columns, but that magic square has so many more properties than uh, other <clears throat> normal magic squares where the sum of the squares of the alternate columns is the same, where the sum of the squares of the alternate rows is the same, where you take any four, uh, 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 any arrangement of four numbers that form a square, give you always the same sum. I mean, it's incredible. So the Dura Magic Square we discuss in pretty much nice detail, but it's a fun thing to do. Um, the, um, um, as I say, there are so many... It's fun also to learn how to construct a magic square of, say, a 10 by 10 or a, uh, an 8 by 8 or just a 3 by 3. They're all done differently. And once you get to know how you do an odd one or a singly even or a double even, you can do them all. And it's fun, as they say. Yeah, I, I know. Uh, um, I'm sure you know Art Benjamin, who's a uh, mathematician who's a speed calculator. He has a great trick involving magic squares where he asks someone in the audience to give them their birthday. And what he does is he constructs a magic square out of it. So you're right. Art, 
Benjamin, who's a very nice guy, and I know him well. Oh, yeah, he's is, a wonderful guy. Has a, has a unique um, capacity in his brain to do calculations in his head. I once invited him to uh, the university, and I invited about uh, 100 mathematics supervisors from the city of New York. This goes about 15 years ago. And it was, he did one thing which was absolutely amazing. In those days, people didn't necessarily have calculators with them as they do now on smartphones. And he said, is there anybody in the room who has a calculator? And two people raised a hand, and they came up front and said, I want you to stand up front here. Now, would someone give me a five-digit number? And someone gave him some five-digit number from the audience. Now, I want you two folks to kick in that five-digit number on your calculator. And then I'd like you to get me the square root. Now, all they have to do is press that one button, square root, and they get the answer. As fast as they press that button, he did it in his head. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Some people- make- he has a... Uh, he's a professor of mathematics at Harvey Mudd College, a wonderful person and a brilliant person. But he has this uh, this unique talent, and it's very rare. I know someone else who has that, but he has a very special uh, uh, capability there. And I told him, I said, listen, Arthur, now you did this. Would you tell people what you were thinking when you were doing this? He used a whole whiteboard to <laughs> explain what he did inside of two seconds. It was amazing. Absolutely. Yeah, he has he has mnemonic devices which enable him to do. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's very clever. You know, one of the things that I like about your book is that every I think everybody who teaches mathematics has something that you know one particular thing that they fasten on that for some reason tends to be a focal point of what interests them. And for me, it's percentages and the mistakes people make involving percentages because I've seen even brilliant people make obvious mistakes in percentages. And the fact that a 10% increase does not offset a 10% decrease is one of the great sources of confusion for most people. As I said, I've seen columns written by economists that make this mistake. And it drives me crazy. And many people aren't aware of it. And I think it's, I, I was glad to see that you included it in your book. But there's even a, a cuter example than that. And that is if two stores next to one another are competitors. Let's say Cheap Charlie's and uh, a Bargain Basement. And uh, let's say Cheap Charlie has, uh, every day we offer uh, 30% discount on everything. And the, uh, the next guy, the uh, bargain basement says, we can't compete with him. Well, we'll offer 20%, but we're very friendly people. But on occasion, we're going to give them an additional 10%. So wouldn't that be the same? Absolutely not. A 30% is not equal to a 10% and a 20%. Yeah. And same kind of thing. It's, it's one of those things that what you have to do is you have to go through the numbers because if you take, say, $100, um, take, tw- t- uh, uh, take a 20% discount, that's $80, and then take a 10% discount of that, that's another $8, and you get to 72 So right. it turns out, you know, it turns, it turns out that you've only uh, discounted by 28%. And I exactly. can remember, for instance, I was teaching at Cal State Long Beach, and um, I said uh, there was a there were a couple of years that uh, uh, 
the Cal State tuition was raised. Um, one year it was raised by 30%, and the next year it was raised by 20%. And I saw students marching around with signs that said 30% plus 20% is 50%. That's too much of an increase. And the actual increase was more than that. Yeah, no, that's, uh, uh, but as I say, there's a very lovely technique or algorithm or procedure that one can use to do that. And I discuss that in the book uh, where you, it's very simple. All you have to do if you want to see how that compares is you subtract them from 100 and multiply. It's, again, I don't want to <clears throat> take away from your time now, but uh, there's a, an automatic procedure for doing that without actually going to numbers, but just working with the percents. You know, one of the loveliest problems in mathematics that arose through something that happened in the real world is the Monty Hall problem. It's a classic, and you explain it very nicely in your book. Maybe you'd like to devote a few minutes to that. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, Let's Make a Deal was a, or still is, a uh, very popular TV show. In the older days, black and white TV, Monty Hall was the uh, the uh, uh, concert master, so to speak, of the of, of the uh, program, and uh, he uh, had this one event on every show where there would be three doors on stage, and he would ask a person in the audience, randomly selected, to come up and do the following. He would tell them, "Here you have three doors." Behind two of the doors is a donkey. Behind one of the doors is a car. If you guess the door with a car, you get to keep the car. If you guess the the door with the donkeys, you get nothing. And so the guy comes up and he says, okay, he stands there and says, I'm going to pick door number three. Now, before he opens door number three, now, and this is the important part, Monty Hall knows where the car is. So before he picks up, uh, door, before he opens up door number three, he says, now, wait a minute. I'm going to give you a second chance. You can either stay with door number three, or you might want to go to one of the other two doors that is still not open. You can change your mind if you want. And so at this point, the audience starts yelling, switch, stick, switch, stick. And you wonder, what's the best strategy? Is it better to stay with the one you took or go to one of the others? And this is, has been a very... Uh, highly disputed and discussed problem among mathematicians who were articles, front page New York Times in the past had it. It's been a very popular problem that I believe is solved, and some people still may be a little bit doubtful about it. And I use uh, an extreme situation where, again, using extremes is a useful technique. It's like the red wine, white wine problem. Exactly. Supposing you have, instead of three doors, supposing you have 100 doors, and you're standing next to door one, number 100. Now, since he knows, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you. So now he says, um, I'm going to, he opens one door, knowing where the donkey is, by the way, Monty Hall opens one door, and knowing where the donkey is, he opens a donkey door. He knows where the donkey is, opens donkey door. And he says, now, would you like to switch your stick? You can take door, let's say you open door number two. So now door number one is closed and door number three is closed, which is the place where the gentleman first selected. Would you like to stay with that one or would you like to go to door number one? And uh, at that point, again, the 
audience switch, stick, switch, stick, back and forth. And the question is, what's the best strategy? So what happens is uh, he does what he does and it either works or it doesn't work. Now, it's not guaranteed. So I explain it this way. Supposing instead of three doors, you have 100 doors. And he comes and he selects door number 100 and st stands there. Now, the um, it's very unlikely that it's next it, that he chose the right door because he had the chances are of him selecting the right when all 100 are closed is one out of 100. That's very small probability. Okay, so let's put a U for unlikely on that door. We paint a U there. Now, all the other doors that's behind one of the other doors is very likely. So we'd put an L for likely on all the other doors. So 99 doors have an L on it, and one door has a U on it. Now, Monty Hall, knowing where the donkey is, he opens up all those doors except one. And that's that the one that, the, that, that, that he knows where the car is, also where the donkeys are. Yeah, he knows where the donkeys are. He's opening up 98 donkey doors. So let's assume that the only door he leaves closed is door number one. And again, uh, the guy is standing next to door number 100. Now, one door has an L on it, and the other door has a U on it. Well, which is the better one? Obviously, go to the L. And that's the, the answer to the problem. The better strategy is to switch and not to stick. So yeah. that's one explanation. I mean, there are other ways to explain it. No, that's thought, the one I like. <laughs> that's the one that works for me. Okay. You know, the last section of the book that you have involves geometry. You have a number of what you refer to as geometrical surprises. My favorite was the surprise appearance of a parallelogram in any quadrilateral and also the surprise appearance of an equilateral triangle in any triangle. But perhaps you have a few of your own you'd like to discuss. Well, the one about the first one you mentioned, I'll never forget as uh, um, there's a very good uh, dynamic geometry program on the market called uh, Geometer's Sketchpad. Yeah, it's, it's been, been around for a while. Yeah, very good. It's now, I think, run by McGraw-Hill. In any case, um, when that first came out many years ago, and I guess it was at a, a math conference in, in uh, St. Louis, I think, and it must have been about 8,000 people. It was the National Council of Teachers Mathematics. And the uh, this fellow by the name of Rasmussen was the, uh, the, the CEO of um, the company that was producing it at the time. And uh, he saw me there and said, listen, I'd like to show you this new program we have at our station. So I go over to his station and, uh, you know, where he has his books out and so on. And he has a little television screen on the old fashioned television. And uh, he says, I want to show you this program that you can use to draw on a screen. I said, great. And he says, how do you draw? Here's how you draw a line and so on and so forth. He says, why don't you try it? So I said, okay. So I take the uh, cursor and I make a quadrilateral, an ugly looking quadrilateral, not a square, not a parallelogram, just an ugly looking quadrilateral, four sides. He says, I said, by the way, how, how would I be able to find the midpoint of those? Oh, that's very easy. You highlight that line. And you select midpoint, and bingo, you get the midpoint. So I got the midpoint of all four sides, and I said, supposing I join them, boom, 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 knowing I knew what was going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> so I join the four uh, sides, and I get a parallelogram. I said, and he said, now you know what you can do? You can put the cursor on one of the 
vertices of the original ugly quadrilateral you had and distort the shape of the original quadrilateral. I said, yeah. And as I did it, obviously, that middle quadrilateral always remained a parallelogram. And as I was doing that, all the way at the other end of this gigantic uh, um, uh, ex exhibition hall in, in this place where there were hundreds of ex exhibitions, I hear a yelling and applause. I said, my God, what the heck happened down there? Oh, my God, I forgot to tell you, what you did on this screen was on a giant screen all the way at the other end. <laughs> so that's one of my favorite little topics because it was such a, a, a dramatic situation. And uh, again, it's a lovely little uh, technique for um, showing some of the beauty of geometry. As a matter of fact, I just finished another book called The Joy of Geometry, which maybe you'll want to take a look at in the future. But that's one of the things that's in there. But again, it's fun. But there are so many things in geometry that are interesting. And, we, you know, the, the I mean, there's some that are a little bit more easy to understand, but not as easy to prove, like the four-color map problem, which has been solved in the 1970s by two mathematicians in Chicago. <clears throat> but um, And that's a very cute little problem. It says to draw any map, any map at all, where you have borders, crossing, whatever, you'll never need more than four colors to color the map so that no two countries that share the same border have this, are the same color. And it, it's, you know, obviously North America is very simple. You only need uh, two colors, one for Mexico, one for United States, and then Canada can be the same color as Mexico because they don't share a border. But there are very complicated uh, shapes or maps where there are um, uh, many countries that, you know, that share the same uh, border. So, but you never need more than four colors. Or the the uh, Bridges of Königsberg, which is um, an old problem in the town of Königsberg, which is today in Russia, <coughs> and where this is a little town, and I show the map, uh, where the, uh, the town had seven bridges. And the question was, can you walk over all the bridges exactly once without going over a bridge a second time? And on Sunday afternoon after church, a lot of these people went for walks, and this was sort of a, a, a regular uh, challenge for people. They go for walks and try to go over this one first and that one and so on. And the question was, is it possible or is it not? And again, this is something that's discussed in the book, but it leads to a field of mathematics called networks. And so again, th these are some of the fun things you can do with geometry, sometimes yeah. drawing them, sometimes working them. Yeah, Al, it's a, you know, when I, when you say mathematics entertainment for the millions, it's a very entertaining and enjoyable book. And how can our listeners get in touch with you? Well, they can write me. My email address is uh, simple. It's A-S, as in Stephen, P, 1818 at gmail.com. A-S-P, 1818 at gmail.com. And I'll be happy to uh, speak with them, and if they leave a phone number, I'll call them back or write them or whatever. I'm happy to correspond with anybody who's interested. And Al, have your publisher send me that book on geometry because I'm sure I'll want to talk to you about it. Will do. Okay, take okay. care.
My pleasure. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.